This podcast is brought to you by Talbot County, Maryland, the birthplace of Frederick Douglass. Visit frederickdouglassbirthplace.org to begin your journey into his life. Driving tours, history, and Douglass in his own words at frederickdouglassbirthplace.org. Hi, this is Carlisle Hashem, and this is Carlisle's Chesapeake. We're so happy to have with us today Steve Luxenberg, who has written a brilliant book. Um, but before we get to the book, let me tell you about him. He is associate editor with the Washington Post, um, worked under Bob Woodward, and for 11 years prior to working at the Post, he was uh, an editor at the Baltimore Sun. Um, we're here in Baltimore and so pleased to be with you, Steve. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you. So, uh, Steve, your book, Separate, The Story of Plessy versus Ferguson and America's Journey from Slavery to Segregation. Could you tell us how you came about writing this book? Well, in the uh, 2012, it's sort of the end of the Obama first term, I was looking around for another book topic to follow my first, my first one, and I thought, you know, I really don't understand the uh, origins of racial separation and divide in our country. Um, I've been an editor at that point for 35 years and had often edited or written stories in which race was a central component, and yet I felt like uh, I was struggling to understand what I regard to be our national conversation, which is which is race and racial injustice. Like we're either talking about race or we're avoiding talking about race. So I wanted to delve back into the 19th century, and, and I was inspired by a book called Gideon's Trumpet, which is a book about a, a Supreme Court case from the 1960s. We know it today as the, the case that uh, allows people who are poor to have a lawyer in a criminal proceeding. Gideon versus Wainwright is the court case. Uh, the book was written by Anthony Lewis, a New York Times reporter, and I was a young guy when I wrote, read that, and I was really inspired by his ability to use that case as a window on America. So I decided I would take my own shot at writing a Supreme Court case and at the same time illuminate our, our racial conversation. So if we could start with the Fugitive Slave Act and explain to us how that impacted our country, please. Well, there's a, the first Fugitive Slave Act was, eight, it was 1798. And it essentially said that slaves were property, that this enslaved population could be uh, kept under control by their uh, owners and that anybody who uh, had, uh, if, a, if a, an enslaved person tried to escape, then uh, others would have to be enlisted to help restore the property to the, to the slave owner. Uh, that act had some flaws in the view of slave owners, and so a new act was was passed in 1850. The what you gave it the right name, the Fugitive Slave Act. And there's a good book that just came out called "The War Before the War," which essentially argues that the Fugitive Slave Act is, if not the trigger, one of the triggers to the Civil War, because it made even more clear that the North was going to have to help the South uh, keep its system of slavery in place. Uh, Northerners could be enlisted, their jails, their police force, their, to, uh, to enforce uh, this uh, awful contract of uh, slave and master. 
And so the North began to revolt, and there were many uh, rescues of uh, men and women who had escaped their enslaved conditions in the South and gone North. Uh, the Underground Railroad was part of that. Uh, and that's the backdrop, this 10 years before the Civil War, this uh, Fugitive Slave Act, which inflamed the tensions that had existed for a long time between North and South. So um, if we could move to that, that being a federal law um, versus going to each state and finding out what was happening in each state, as you so well um, point out in your book, um, what happened in Massachusetts? We have to go back to the dawn of the railroad age now. <laughs> uh, this is the late 1830s. Passenger railroads have come into existence. And to try to illuminate this, we have to think about it as as revolutionary as a cell phone or a uh, computer. Uh, if you were traveling on horseback or by stagecoach in the 1830s and suddenly this smelly, lumbering piece of machinery came into, into existence that allowed you to travel more quickly from one place to the other, but in return you had to sit among a large group of people, it raised all kinds of questions that had not been raised before. Where do I sit? With whom do I sit? Um, do I want to share a compartment with somebody of a lesser class or a different color? Uh, in Massachusetts, there were eight passenger railroads operating by, the 18, by 1840. And three of them, but only three of them, decided that they would separate their passengers by color. And this, in separate, uh, I argue, is the birth of separation or the birth of segregation, a word I don't use in the book because they didn't use it. In the 19th century, the word separation was the word that they would have used. And so that's why I call the book separate. Uh, Massachusetts uh, is the North. And of course, we have the narrative that the South, that segregation and Jim Crow is the shame of the South, but this proves that it's also the shame of the North. Uh, there were not very many free people of color in Massachusetts in 1840. According to the census, there were fewer than 1%. So I don't think this was a huge problem waiting to be solved. Uh, but among the passengers, this fewer than 1% was Frederick Douglass, uh, then the newest agent of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, the abolitionists led by William Lloyd Garrison. Uh, and Douglas was a young guy who had impressed them so much in a few speeches that he had given uh, that it, they hired him and he was often traveling in the company of a white abolitionist. And this became a plan rather than just a journey, a plan to disrupt and to protest the policy of racial separation on the Eastern Railroad and the New Bedford-Taunton Railroad both lines leading north and south from Boston. Uh, they saw an issue, the abolitionists, when, the, when they saw an issue that, that, that could work for them, they seized upon it. Uh, they protested. They would both refuse to sit uh, in, the, in the car reserved for people of color. And uh, if Douglas was kicked out of the white car, uh, then the white abolitionists would accompany him to the, to the black car. Uh, the conductors were fed up with this so much that they even skipped stops where they knew that Douglas was living so that he wouldn't get on. <laughs> Didn't work. Uh, Douglas writes about this vividly in his memoir. He talks about how he, it took six men, because Douglas was a broad-shouldered big guy, to oust him from his seat. And that in one case, he held so tightly to the, to the seat that he lifted it up off of, it, off of the bolts that had mm. bolted it to, to the floor. Mm. Um, and yet... Um, there was another guy uh, whose name was David Ruggles, mm -hmm. a, a 
black abolitionist from New York who was visiting, uh, attending some of the meetings of the Massachusetts group. And when he was uh, ousted from his seat uh, and was left on the platform bruised and battered, he did something that Douglas never did, which is that he went into the New Bedford police court where he swore out a warrant against the conductor and the railroad for assault. Uh, he lost that case, uh, but it established the idea that a, a black man, an African-American, could go into court and and uh, pursue his grievance. And I, I suggest that on the shoulders of Ruggles and a whole host of others uh, comes the case of Plessy at the end of the 19th century. And one other gentleman who I'd like to point out was Charles Redmond and the steamboat incident with Frederick Douglass. Could you just enunciate on that one too, please? Yeah, so Charles Redmond was a Massachusetts guy born in Salem who, when he returned from a European trip where he was treated very well, despite his his color, um, he felt that uh, he was his return, he was greeted with this separate railroad which had come into existence, separate railroad cars come into existence while he was in Europe. And he was mortified that he could not sit in, in the, the white car as he traveled home from Boston to Salem. He had a confrontation with the superintendent about that, the superintendent of the Eastern Railroad, a man he knew from his Salem days, and told him just how he felt about it. Well, some five to ten years later, in the late 1840s, uh, uh, Redmond, now an abolitionist of some note in, in America, uh, traveling with Frederick Douglass, also a man of note already by this time, were on a steamboat uh, in, on the Ohio River, which was the dividing line between North and South. And you could use it both as a metaphor and as a real dividing line uh, to understand the tensions between North and South because uh, enslaved people escaping to freedom were crossing the Ohio River. And of course, if they were returned under the Fugitive Slave Act that we talked about, they would be returned south across that same river. So on this steamboat, according to a passenger who later wrote about it, uh, uh, Redmond and, and uh, Douglas went into the dining room to have a meal. Uh, they were confronted by a group of white Kentuckians, told they could not sit there. And, uh, and Henry Clay was there at the time as well. And the famous politician, Kentucky politician Henry Clay was on board. Um, they retired to a corner of the dining room, uh, eating with no one except themselves, did not make a fuss about it. But but Clay thought that it would be uh, perhaps some sort of uh, interesting conversation as well as perhaps some compensation for the treatment that he invited them to give a talk on board the upper deck of the ship, um, which uh, Redmond and Douglas did. And according to this passenger, uh, Clay said he had never heard a finer talk than that, the one he heard that day. Oh, yes. Frederick Douglass, whether you liked him for being black or not, he was an incredible orator. <laughs> yeah, the, he, he had no trouble uh, grabbing a hold of an audience and keeping uh, its, uh, its attention. Uh, this also happened with one of the main characters in the story, uh, Justice man who would become justice later on, uh, John Marshall Harlan of Kentucky, who met Douglas in 1872 when both of them were asked to come to Maine to campaign for the presidential candidate, then president, uh, Ulysses Grant, invited by James Blaine, the Speaker of the House, uh, who lived in, Ma in Maine and wanted an all-star lineup to come to Maine and stump for, for the candidate. Okay, so let's move to New Orleans because New Orleans um, society wasn't 
just black and white. There are many gradations thereof. Could you explain that for us, please? So New Orleans, as it is now, is a unique city, uh, unlike any other in the country, certainly in uh, the 19th century. We need to go back a little bit to 1803. Now, why 1803? Because that's when the Americans took over New Orleans from the from the French and the Spanish, and those French and Spanish influences were uh, palpable in New Orleans society at that point. The Americans were the interlopers, the outsiders, and they felt that way. So when the provisional governor shows up, the American provisional governor from Virginia, a guy named William Claiborne, he is stunned to find that there are 6,000 people who are free people of color, so called uh, in the French uh, term that you're going to... Les gens de couleur libre. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he doesn't quite know what to make of them or do about them because he's seen nothing like this in the American uh, states. Uh, he doesn't. There are no, no such group in, in Virginia. And as you suggested, the gradations, these are people who have uh, had relationships with white Frenchmen, white Spaniards, and often families have every uh, shading of color across the spectrum. So, so many shadings that when the young journalist, a guy named Frederick Law Olmsted, who we, we know as the, as the, <laughs> the designer of Central Park. The father of landscape architecture. Yeah, <laughs> the designer of Central Park. When he arrived as a correspondent for a new newspaper in, in the 1850s called the New York Times, uh, they had assigned him to travel the South and write back about the slave states. Uh, he developed a chart in New Orleans of all of the gradations uh, from one to nine uh, so that he could keep them straight and give his northern readers some sense of how different New Orleans really was. So by the uh, 1850s, before the Civil War, and then later after the Civil War, New Orleans had always had this sandwiched layer between the white uh, ruling uh, class and the uh, enslaved population. Um, this this mixed-race group, and they were not only free, but they had certain rights, not all their rights, but they could own property, they could acquire wealth, they could not run for political office, they could not vote. Um, but they've been agitating for their rights ever since the American takeover. They agitate for them in the middle of the Civil War when the Union troops uh, occupy New Orleans. They needed to occupy New Orleans quickly, they felt, because it was the the, the controlling point of the Mississippi River. And if, if the Confederates were allowed to control the Mississippi, they thought they would lose the war. So Lincoln ordered the troops down to New Orleans and they seized it and held it through the end of the war. Uh, this group continues to agitate for their rights all the way up till the 1890s when a law is passed, not a policy of the railroads, but a law mandating separation on railroad cars and that's the fight that the New Orleans group decides to take on in 1892. Plessy versus Ferguson. But before we dive into that case, um, if you could explain to us a little bit about how Chief Justice, not Chief Justice, Supreme Court Justice Harlan um, comes about, let's say he matures <laughs> in his in his. Um, Thinking. The, the arc of, of Harlan's life is a fascinating one, uh, a heartening one, I think, shows that people can change. Uh, Harlan was born a slaveholder's son. His father was attorney general of Kentucky, among other uh, political offices. 
he acquires the family's slaves as the administrator of his father's estate in 1863. He doesn't buy and sell many slaves. This is a household staff that is enslaved, but he does uh, buy a cook in 1864, which his wife later writes about in her memoir. Uh, they regard themselves as benign slaveholders, if any such thing exists. And they like to tell stories about how well-treated their, their slaves were, of course. Um, in the 1860s, though, Harlan is undergoing a conversion. He first signs up to have a regiment, lead his own regiment in the Union Army. Kentucky is a border state, not a slave state. There are slaves. I'm sorry, it is a slave state. It's a border state but not a Confederate state, never joins the Confederacy. Like Maryland. Like Maryland. And uh, yet he makes clear in a letter he writes to the Louisville newspaper that in leading this regiment, he has no intention of fighting a war to end slavery. He believes strongly that any change like that and other changes are Kentucky's responsibility, not the federal government's responsibility. And so he resists any effort to impose federal authority on, on such issues. Um, but after the war, he undergoes the conversion that you spoke about. Uh, he joins the Republican Party, which is the anti-slavery party founded in 1854. And in Kentucky, that's like signing your political death warrant because uh, the Republicans had no chance of winning. Uh, to prove it, uh, Harlan runs twice for governor, 1871 and 1875, loses both of them, uh, and then decides to turn his eyes toward national uh, political life and uh, engineers essentially his nomination to the Supreme Court by uh, uh, furthering his relationship with the new president, President Rutherford B. Hayes. Um, gets on the court and he uh, becomes an, a, the only dissenter in the, in the handful of civil rights cases that the court addresses from 1877 when Harlan gets on the court to 1896 when Plessy is decided. Frederick Douglass was among the most famous Americans of his day, an internationally renowned author, orator, and statesman whose words and deeds helped shape the modern United States. His journey began in Talbot County, Maryland, which honors his legacy with the Frederick Douglass Park on the Tuckahoe. Other locations throughout Talbot County commemorate his birth, childhood, and return trips as an adult, during which he was hailed as a hero. Visit frederickdouglasbirthplace.org to begin your exploration of his life. You'll find free historical information and the full texts of all three of his autobiographies. Driving tours through small towns and the countryside help you follow in the footsteps of one of the most significant figures of the 19th century. Douglas once said, What is possible for me is possible for you. To celebrate that possibility, plan a trip to scenic Talbot County, Maryland, which welcomes travelers to experience more than 600 miles of coastline. Go to frederickdouglasbirthplace.org. I just want to point out here a couple things. One, that in your book, you use um, the women's perspective so well um, because these men wrote to their wives and you had the... Um, that background information to give more depth to an understanding of how these men's uh, decisions came about. Um, so, you know, the book is kind of what I call a double narrative. It's, it's, it's the narrative of the people who make and argue, who argue and make the decision in the Plessy case, 
That's Harlan, the justice who's the dissenter, Justice Henry Billings Brown, who is the writer of the majority opinion, the awful majority opinion that we uh, you know, think so badly of today and appropriately so. And the uh, lawyer for the Plessy team, a, a northerner who has lived in the South, though, named Albion Turget. But it's also a narrative of the many resistors to separation, starting with uh, Douglas and Ruggles, but continuing on to include uh, William Howard Day in Michigan, who brings a case to the Michigan Supreme Court when he's denied uh, an indoor cabin uh, on a steamboat, to Mary Miles, a teacher in Philadelphia who was ejected from the white car, uh, Ida B. Wells, the uh, later to be the famous crusading black journalist who was also ejected from railroad cars in Tennessee and twice sues and wins at the lower level and loses at the Tennessee Supreme Court. So the, the book carries both of these narratives forward till they all meet on the stage in New Orleans and Washington in the 1890s. Another fascinating narrative is the gentleman, a Creole gentleman from New Orleans, who um, br helps bring the case about which was an engineered case, <laughs> which you can explain, but um, but how despondent he became in living in New Orleans, which was his birthplace, and he had been a free man all, all, all the whole time. He had never been a slave, so just the confluence of the needs of all these different people um, and and what became priorities is really fascinating. Well, the guy you're speaking of is a man named Louis Martinet. And he was actually born in a parish outside of New Orleans and moved to New Orleans to go to law school, which he doesn't complete. But that's, it's rare that people are in law school uh, in the 19th century anyway. He reads the law, becomes a lawyer in New Orleans, um, a notary public, which was a big deal in New Orleans because it gave you uh, a steady income. You know, a lot of the, the Napoleonic law is different and required uh, this notary position to become prominent. But uh, he was also the editor of a newspaper, several newspapers. The one that's most important is the New Orleans Crusader, uh, a name that obviously suggests something, advocacy. And uh, in that position, he writes in 1890 when the legislature passes the Separate Car Act that uh, they will bring a case, a test case, to the federal courts and then, of course, he has to go about and try to engineer that, which isn't that easy. He has a committee uh, with him and behind him, the committee to test the constitutionality of the separate car law, their letterhead said, not a name I guess most public relations people would use today, a little bit of a mouthful. Um, but Martinet is a, a mixed-race man who uh, can pass for white and often does, Is says to Turgé in his letters that they're He's rarely hassled on his travels and public transportation, but he is despondent in part because he knows that he can be hassled at any time and that someone who's white doesn't really, really does not understand what it's like to be somebody who can never th stop thinking about his race, which sounds very familiar to us today, to so what some people would say today. Uh, Martinet is uh, uh, a fighter. Uh, he's not going to give up, um, even as they discuss their chances of winning the case. And in 1893, when Turgé tells him by letter, uh, I think we might want to withdraw, uh, Martinet doesn't uh, exactly say no. Uh, they discuss it by letter, uh, but he clearly doesn't want to. And that, that 
suggestion that they withdraw fades away without it being acted upon. And so they continue on despite the change in the court, which brought two more uh, you know, less favorable justices to their cause uh, under the court when Grover Cleveland was the president. And he was a Democrat who therefore brought onto the court people who would not be in favor of a broader view of civil rights. Um, but Steve, I want to underline here that when Martinet goes to Frederick Douglass for support, um, Frederick Douglass um, does not support him, um, even though he had, Frederick Douglass um, had called a meeting of the colored people in Louisville um, and said, you must continue the fight at all costs, continue the fight. Um, but he doesn't financially support him, uh, perhaps because, uh, why do you think? What? Well, we don't know a lot about this. I wish we knew more. I wish Frederick Douglass's letters uh, survived, um, if he sent any to the committee. Um, what we do know is, is that Martinet, in writing to Turget, is furious at Douglas, who he had great respect for. Um, as you said, in 1883, there was a convention of colored men, it was called, in Louisville that Douglas had called. Now, Douglas at this point is the most famous black man in America, but he is not universally loved. And uh, just because you were black or African-American or mixed race did not mean that you always agreed with Mr. Douglas. Like, like many social and political movements, Douglas was the old guard. And the young Turks at the convention were often grumbling that why should they pay attention to what Mr. Douglas is always saying? Mr. Douglas always wants to have his way. He wanted to have the convention in Washington. We don't live in Washington. Mr. Douglas does. It's easy for him, etc. So in the, among the delegates, there were, quote, delegates. This was a convention just like a political convention to the Republican or National uh, Party. Um, Martinet is a delegate from Louisiana. He's, he's young at this point. He's in his, I think, his late 20s. Um, and he is full of fire. And he loves hearing Douglas say, we must always resist. We must always fight. We must never be silent. And he thinks he's carrying out not only Douglas's view, but his own view of what needs to be done in the 1890s when he's fighting against this separate car law and other injustices and other discriminations. So when the committee writes to Douglas and gets a, a no back, I will not help you either. I don't know if they asked him financially or just asked him to publicly support the cause. He is furious because he feels that Douglas is sitting on the sidelines, this man who had always called for resistance. And he tells Turgeet of his anger and his frustration. So you asked, why did Douglas refuse? We don't really know. My speculation would be that one, this was not his constituency. He looked at this mixed race group of wealthier, more educated, uh, more privileged uh, men of color, men and women of color in New Orleans and said, not my crowd. Uh, and therefore, he did not want to necessarily throw his support. But it was probably complicated. It was also a losing case. And even though Douglas said we must always resist, he might have thought, well, we must always resist, but we must do it smartly and in the right place at the right time. This is not a smart case. He might have felt. I just don't know because we don't have Douglas's words to help us. And there, there's something else that you um, have in the book about how there were gains being um, made at least perceived anyhow by certain members of the of this colored con um, uh, convention, people who represented um, those in the convention that 
they were making gains with Republicans and they didn't want to rock the boat. And this was a complicated situation because the Republicans by the 1890s are having a discussion. This was published in the newspaper. This was not uh, a private discussion of, is it time for the Republican Party to, quote, abandon the Negro? Uh, they felt that the, the people who were arguing this felt that the party was going to lose its grip on power if it continued to be the party always associated with the cause of equal rights and, and uh, uh, black African-Americans. Uh, and they felt that it was they had to become a, a, a party with a wider view, an economically wider view. Um, people like Terje, who was a syndicated newspaper columnist uh, published in the Chicago Inter-Ocean, a platform that he used to excoriate the Republican Party, which, of course, he was a member of and closer to than he would ever have been to any Democrat. Uh, how dare they say this? How dare they ever even contemplate this? Um, this is uh, this is the party that uh, once uh, was an anti-slavery party and which uh, was the champion of civil rights. How dare they turn their backs on this issue? Um, Douglas uh, himself had misgivings about the Republican Party uh, after the convention uh, in Louisville in 1883, um, and he gotten some criticism. Uh, one of his correspondents uh, wrote him a letter asking him about it, and he wrote back and said, well, uh, the Republicans aren't always the party that I, I don't always agree with what the Republicans are doing or saying, but they're the only party we've got, <laughs> and we have to stick with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will continue to criticize them, but I will not abandon them. Okay, so um, Plessy versus Ferguson, finally, after four years, um, is brought before the Supreme Court, and um, do you want to finish out by saying what happened? <laughs> the separate but well, equal. I've been complimented in the book because <laughs> because people have said, even though we know the outcome of Plessy, that is that the court upheld the notion of separate but equal, uh, sanctioned it, um, that it it uh, the book still reads like a thriller. Like it you're does. Really, you're hoping that they're, that they're going to succeed after all, even though we know. They're not. The court in this case rejects the arguments of the of the Plessy team, the 13th and 14th Amendment arguments. Those are the amendments that, well, the, the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery, but also has a clause saying that there's, there should be a ban on, on any uh, mark of servitude, badge of servitude. And the argument that Turget and his crowd made was is that being designated to go to a separate car is like a badge of servitude. It's a mark on you. The, the, the majority rejected that. Harlan, in his dissent, embraced that idea. In the 14th Amendment, which requires equal protection under the laws uh, and which requires due process, the court also rejected that, saying that the states by the state, in this case Louisiana, uh, by making it separate but equal in their, in their accommodation, that is, the preamble to the, to the law says that there shall be equal but separate accommodations for white and colored passengers, was uh, following equal protection, uh, and that separation itself uh, wasn't a problem for the majority. Harlan was horrified. He said in his dissent that this decision would be regarded one day as pernicious and as awful as Dred Scott, which is the 1857 decision that said uh, African-Americans can never be citizens of, of the country. 
That was reversed by the 14th Amendment, which awarded citizenship rights to anybody who was born in the United States. Uh, so it wasn't, the case was not a surprise uh, when my newspaper, The Washington Post, covered uh, Turgé's oral argument in April of 1896. Um, it, it didn't really write much about the substance of what he said. Instead, because Turgé had been a novelist who had written a book called A Fool's Errand by one of the fools <laughs> about his experience in Reconstruction, North Carolina. It's a, a melodramatic novel uh, that is based on his experiences. Uh, the newspaper took advantage of the title and said, here is Albion Turgé in Washington on another fool's errand. Uh, so when did Plessy become the landmark that we regarded today? Well, it took many years as the Supreme Court kept citing it as a precedent in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s before Thurgood Marshall and then NAACP Legal Defense Fund uh, targeted it as the case that they had to overturn or had to, to resist. The court doesn't overturn it directly. It does it inferentially in Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. But today, you know, I have a Google alert, which brings me all things Plessy. <laughs> and one of the things that I get is a, uh, you know, often see is articles that just in a quick shorthand, as newspapers have to do, will say, uh, so Plessy is the case where the Supreme Court created the doctrine of separate but equal and made it the law of the land. And I began to realize how much I objected to that uh, that uh, shorthand because, one, the Supreme Court did not create a doctrine. It endorsed one that had been around, as we've talked about, since the Massachusetts railroads first came into existence. And secondly, it doesn't make laws. Congress makes laws, and it doesn't make it the law of the land. It leaves it to the other 49 states to enact their own Jim Crow legislation, which many of them do, especially in the South. So I say, uh, I, 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 but I make this point because I feel that what that narrative does, let's call it a narrative, is to lay the blame for our racial injustices at the feet of those nine or those seven justices. Seven to one was the decision. One justice didn't participate. The seven justices of the Supreme Court, it's the Supreme Court's fault. And I will say emphatically, it's not the Supreme Court's fault. It's all of our faults. Uh, the Supreme Court, in this case, are followers, not leaders. Uh, it's the shame of the North. It's the shame of the South. It's the shame of the country. Well, Steve, I commend you for your brilliant efforts in putting this book together. And I know you had a huge amount of um, back <laughs> backup stories and and uh, and help in all of the research that you did. Um, this would be this book would be a course, in my estimation, for a college, for a whole semester. Um, it's really, really well done. Well, I appreciate that. Um, you know, I think it, one of the most telling things, talking again about Frederick Douglass, is that uh, if we want to see how an African-American saw the world in the 19th century, you could do uh, worse than just going to Frederick Douglass's speech to the 1876 Republican National Convention, the one that nominated Rutherford B. Hayes, and listen to his words in which he said uh, that, he, in a very sarcastic way, he said to the Republicans, remember, remember he's, this is the beginning of his you know, concerns about the Republican Party. You say you have enfranchised us, and you have, and I thank you for that. You say you have emancipated us, and you have, and I thank you for that. 
But then he goes on to say, uh, dropping the sarcasm, but what have you, what have you done? What is your liberation when you've let, it, let us alone to endure the lash, not just the lash of the slaveholder, that's gone, but the slaveholder's shotgun, uh, referring to lynchings and other forms of violence that had begun to uh, occur. Um, and, he, and he uses the word your in a very emphatic way. When are you going to make good on your constitution, your laws, these laws that were enacted after the Civil War uh, to promote equal rights? He was making the point that I don't feel like I had any participation in this. I didn't vote for them. I couldn't. I didn't have office, although some there were black office holders by 1876, but not before the 1865 period. Um, these are your promises, he said. When are you going to make good on them? And I think that's a very telling uh, speech that we might look back on. Thank you for listening. Please go to my website, carlyleschesapeake.com, to hear more in our series about Frederick Douglass. This podcast is brought to you by Talbot County, Maryland, the birthplace of Frederick Douglass. Visit frederickdouglasbirthplace.org to begin your journey into his life. Driving tours, history, and Douglass in his own words at frederickdouglasbirthplace.org.